Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 111, The Philosopher of Our Time, Introducing Plotinus. The title of this episode is taken from the very first sentence of the biography of Plotinus by his student, Porphyry of Tyre, written sometime after the year 270 when Plotinus died. Porphyry introduces his master with the description Hokathemas Gegonos Philosophos, which we could translate as either the philosopher of our time, or maybe the one who became for us the philosopher. Us being presumably Porphyry and his mates at Rome, the Platonist circle around Plotinus, of which Porphyry was a prominent member. Either way, Porphyry is stating right at the outset of his biography of Plotinus that this was the guy. And he's right. Plotinus really was the philosopher of the third century. His influence was immense in his own day and only grew over time. To take one example, there was an official Platonic academy at Athens under imperial patronage. Um, The emperor Marcus Aurelius in the year 176 had set up official Platonist, Aristotelian, Stoic, and Epicurean sort of chairs at Athens. This was part of the process by which philosophy became more and more a semi-official part of Greco-Roman culture. But the holder of the Athenian chair in Platonist philosophy in the third century in in this part of the 3rd century, who was officially the Diadochos, or successor of Plato, he wrote to Plotinus in Rome asking for his philosophical thoughts, not the other way around. And we don't even know who this Diadochos was. And everyone in later years, from the later Platonists, whom we shall be discussing in this podcast, thinkers like Porphyry, Iamblichus, and Proclus, to Christians like Augustine, and of course the pseudo-Dionysius, from whom a powerful current of apophatic Christian thought emerges, from the East Roman monks who copied Plotinus's works so assiduously through the Middle Ages to Marsilio Ficino in 15th century Italy and beyond, all of these thinkers of a Platonist bent remembered Plotinus and rated him as one of the highest, if not indeed the single highest authority in philosophy after Plato himself and often read Plato through the lens of Plotinus, whether they thought that's what they were doing or not. Plotinus was immensely influential in the Islamicate world, right through the Middle Ages and down to the present day, in the works of thinkers like Mullah Sadra, to take just one example. But we can also look to modern philosophers, whom you might conceivably study in a modern European philosophy department, people like Bergson, Whitehead, Heidegger, and others, and find them in dialogue with Plotinus. You might also encounter the thought of Plotinus nowadays in a different context. If you were studying mysticism at university, you would definitely find William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience on the reading list. And when you cracked James open and flipped ahead to lectures 16 and 17 on mysticism, the really juicy bits, uh, which is perhaps the single most influential discussion of the term mysticism and has done more to define what it's supposed to mean than any other single piece of writing in history, in there you will find Plotinus given pride of place. And indeed, among the four characteristics of mystical experience given in James's influential typology, we find noetic 
quality. So what is noetic quality? Let's quote James himself. Although so similar to states of feeling, mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. They're states of insight into depths of truth unplumbed by the discursive intellect. They are illuminations, revelations full of significance and importance, all inarticulate though they remain. And as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for after time. End of quote. As we shall see in the course of our discussions of Plotinus, it was this philosopher who put the final stamp on the noetic as the higher state of consciousness which transcends discursivity. And this is precisely the idea of noesis and nous and the noetic that William James is referring to here. So when people say noetic, which they sometimes do, often in discussions that also use the term gnosis or gnostic, they unconsciously or consciously are really referring to kind of consciousness that Plotinus really did the uh, fundamental work of defining. So who was this giant? In this episode, we're going to give a mix of philosophical and biographical details to try to give an introductory snapshot of what we know of Plotinus's life, the kind of philosophical activity he was engaged with, and so on. So we're going to start with the basics of his philosophy, and we will soon discover that there aren't really basics to his philosophy. You'll see what I mean by that. And then we'll turn to his life and work. It turns out that we know a good deal about the life of Plotinus and the kind of philosophical activity he was engaged with, though of course we have gaps in our information as well. Then we shall also need to talk about the written works we have from the great philosopher, the gigantic corpus of philosophic writings nowadays known as the Enneads. And all of this will in fact be enough to fill a reasonably chunky episode. So we'll follow this episode with one which attempts to open a door on Plotinus's thought in a little more depth. That will be episode 112. In subsequent episodes, we shall consider a number of specific facets of the Plotinian question, turning to the higher realities, the one and the noose, found in his thought, discussing spiritual practices in Plotinus, looking at the possible relations between Plotinus and the ideas expounded in the Sethian Gnostic tractates, and more. So with all this on the agenda, it'll be good to get a solid grounding in the basics, which is what we've tried to do in this episode. So before we even get to Plotinus's biography, can we summarize his philosophy? Well, as everyone knows, Plotinus is the founder or first thinker in the philosophic movement known as Neoplatonism. But wait a minute, keen listeners to the Schwepp know that we eschew this term Neoplatonism, preferring the term late Platonism because it has fewer inherent polemics. So how do we want to approach this problem? What we've decided is that most listeners will be much more interested in what Plotinus actually thought than in the terminology which we use to discuss thinkers like him. So for those listeners, just keep listening. For those who are interested in exactly what we mean by Platonic, Platonist, Neoplatonist, Platonizing, and my personal favorite, Platonistic, we have made a special members episode following this one, which includes a fully footnoted essay on terminology for discussing ancient thought bearing the imprint of Plato. So for the hardcore, please check out that episode. And for those who just want to learn something about the thought of Plotinus, here is the best short summary we've been able to come up with. 
Spoiler alert, this summary is totally misleading. You have been warned. Plotinus's philosophy is performative, and so you can't just get it without doing it, which means at an absolute minimum, reading and rereading the works of Plotinus and transforming your consciousness in the process. So Plotinus was a thinker with a fully developed worldview. And most readers of Plotinus would agree that there's not really much difference between Plotinus from the very first work he ever wrote and the very last he ever wrote in terms of how he sees the world. Everyone agrees that this worldview is drawn from a deep reading of Plato, and particular works of Plato are given pride of place in Plotinus, notably the Parmenides, the Philebus, the Phaedrus, the Symposium, and others. Some ancients, people in his day and after his day, thought of his philosophy as simply a distillation and systematization or just clarification of Plato's own thought. And that indeed is kind of how he thought about himself, as we shall see. This is one of the reasons we question the Neo in Neoplatonism. Who are we, as moderns, to say we know Plato better than ancients who read him in their first language, Greek, and with access to a much richer tradition of Platonic material than we have, and they said, oh, this guy is just explaining Plato better than anyone else has. The general opinion in after years, in antiquity after Plotinus, if we can oversimplify a bit, was that Plotinus was the key to understanding Plato, or at least the best available expounder of Platonic doctrine. He was at any rate definitely a Platonist, if what we mean by Platonist is someone whose chief exegetical debt is to Plato, and who considers that Plato has a teaching of some kind, rather than just being an author who raises questions or teaches a method, as the academic skeptics thought. So if you think Plato is a dogmatic writer, and you follow him, you are a Platonist by this definition. Plotinus was also deeply indebted to all manner of other schools of thought, of ancient philosophy. As Porphyry notes in his Life of Plotinus, his thought is full of Stoic ideas and even Aristotelian ideas, which Porphyry describes as either being hidden in Plotinus's writings or as lying there unnoticed, depending on how we want to translate it. In fact, Plotinus even makes use of arguments from the Skeptical Academy. In later episodes, we shall discuss both his debt to various different schools of thought and also the very different question of how Plotinus frames the intellectual lineage to which he feels he belongs. Now, these two are sometimes conflated in scholarship, which I think is a big mistake, an idea which is expanded on in the special episode following this one. In other words, what he says he's doing and what we say he's doing don't always match up. The point for now is that while Plotinus was known by some in his own day as the leading expounder of Plato or of Platonic and Pythagorean doctrines, as one critic put it, we should not expect to find some kind of pure, and I put that words in emphatic quotation marks, Platonism, because such a thing never existed anyway. Using the modern interpretation of Plato as a yardstick, we moderns can't even decide if Plato had a teaching at all, much less how best to interpret it as a whole, a project that many modern readers would think is a wrong-headed project in the first place because Plato's thought develops and he chose to write drama instead of doctrinal treatises, so how can we even talk about his teaching, right? What we have in Plotinus, I would argue, is a worldview which, while taking much of its primary architecture straight from Plato— things like the forms, interprets this Platonic heritage in the light of centuries of Middle Platonist and other philosophical work, which, as we know, means 
taking into account Aristotle and the Stoics at the very least. Please see our episodes on Middle Platonism for more on this. And probably too, reading Plato in the light of Ammonius's specific teachings, we'll get to Ammonius in a minute, and in the light of Plotinus's own peculiar doctrines, something which Porphyry alludes to. Porphyry says a couple different times, Plotinus was quite original in his approach. We should also mention that Porphyry discusses the fact that in Plotinus's day, he was accused of plagiarizing Numenius of Apamea, so there was definitely a lot of Numenius in Plotinus. We can see this from the surviving fragments of Numenius, but probably extended to uh, a lot of Numenian material that we don't have anymore. Plotinus's worldview is one in which reality can be described in terms of hypostasis, a Greek word best translated as reality. There are three main hypostases, we'll say hypostases in English. So three of these realities, or even levels of reality, which as a translation is both helpful and deceptive. So these levels of reality are the one, also known as the good, the noose, and soul. The reality below soul, that is our world of body, senses, change, time, and so on, the world we walk around in and bump into things, is sometimes described as the world of nature, physis, and some scholars think Plotinus wants to consider physis a hypostasis as well. Mm, sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. Now the universe, that's everything I've just described taken as a whole, from the one all the way down to nature and matter, the universe is eternal in Plotinus. It doesn't have a beginning or end. And it exists because the first principle of reality, the one, also occasionally called the beautiful or God, which is utterly transcendent of all conceivable attributes and can only be discussed under the strictures of the deepest apophatic unsaying. The one is by its nature or non-nature so good or hyper good that in an eternal moment, it, as it were, overflows, giving rise to a second reality, the proto-noose. The proto-noose, the noose before it was yet formed into a noose, sometimes called by the snappy title the pre-noetic efflux, which really has a ring to it, this entity, having come to be, or almost be, turned back toward the one and contemplated it which is impossible, but the protonoose did it anyway. This contemplation leads to the noose becoming noose proper. So it becomes itself by contemplating its origin. And within this divine entity, the noose came to be the whole structure of forms. For the Platinian noose is the world of forms. Somehow, the contemplation of the one leads to the noetic world coming to be. And the noetic world is being itself and everything in being, everything that exists, exists within the noose. Once being has been structured within the noose, a further emanation comes into reality. This is soul, psyche, which is also a divine, eternal, unchanging reality. Soul contemplates the noose, and this contemplation gives rise to the world we see, including the astral realm, the earth itself, the world soul, and our souls, the souls of individuals. Then there's matter at the bottom of the scale, and matter is a kind of hungry ghost 
in Plotinus, and it yearns for form, which is found in nous. The combination of matter and form is what leads to bodies down here, and thus our world is a kind of imperfect copy of the noetic prototype. There you go. A nice metaphysical layer cake with one noose soul, maybe nature, if we want to consider nature a hypostasis or level of reality. And at the bottom of this chain of being, we find matter, which is a howling void of chaos and emptiness, and which also, like the one, cannot be described with any attributes. It is only susceptible to apophatic description. So at the top and the bottom of Plotinus's universe, we find it hedged around with unsayable transcendence. One, an ultimate transcendent goodness, and one, an ultimate transcendent evil or shadow or simply lack of goodness or lack of anything else. There you have it. Quite tidy, right? Now, let's see why this structure we have erected is wrong. First of all, the sequence of emanations we've just described is not to be and cannot be understood as temporal. Time doesn't even exist in this scheme until you get to the soul and everything below soul. Time basically exists only in nature and is itself a product of soul. Soul makes time. So forget about the one emanates the noose, which emanates soul. This would imply a temporal sequence of events. One thing happened before the other. This is instead a description of an eternal relational structure within reality, which never happened. It is instead what it means for things to happen. Secondly, these are not emanations that we're talking about. Emanation is a metaphorical way of talking about this type of origin story as opposed to creation, for example. A creation story is where you have a god and then he decides to make something which is not himself or herself. A world, for example. There's other kinds of creation stories too, of course, or origin stories, but these are two that are very common in the Abrahamic world. But emanation doesn't really get to the heart of how Plotinus sees these relationships between the realities. It's just that we don't have a better term for it, so we use emanation anyway. Thirdly, the human being does not just exist here in the embodied material world. He exists in the noose all the time. He is, in fact, and by saying he, what I mean is anthropos, human being, which is grammatically masculine in Greek. He is always in the noose. He has a transcendent higher self, which exists in the noetic world and never descends to this world. But he also can ascend out of the body, out of the world of this matter, to the noose, and even to a direct encounter with the one itself. So the borders between these realities are permeable, and the identities of the realities get permeable as well in Plotinus's writing. As we shall see, in order for the human being to encounter the one, which is the highest achievement of Plotinian philosophy, and something we are told he himself did achieve, he must cease to be all that which is not the one. So this sounds a bit like he must become the one, and it is a bit like that, and that's why people always talk about mystical union with the first principle in Plotinus, but it's more complicated than just that. And anyway, there are a lot of intermediary transformations which must occur before 
he even approaches the highest level of noose, much less the direct encounter with the one. We'll get to all that in later episodes. But uh, I mention it here partly to whet your appetite for the trippy transformational metaphysics of Plotinus, and also further to undermine the metaphysical layer cake approach to Plotinus's worldview that we've just laid out. But now let's descend from these lofty metaphysical heights and discuss Plotinus's biography, something he himself would have found a waste of time, as we'll see, but we're going to do it anyway. Now here we're in a strange position. We have The Life of Plotinus, written by Porphyry of Tyre, one of Plotinus's most advanced students. And this puts us in an unusually strong position. To contextualize this, we lack anything like a biography of Plato until centuries after his death. But with Porphyry's life, we have an eyewitness account by someone who hung out with Plotinus of Plotinus's life. However, as Porphyry notes in his opening remarks, it was very difficult for anyone to learn about Plotinus's early life before he came to Rome, because he treated details like where he was born, what happened in his youth, all that sort of thing, as unworthy subjects for philosophers. And we can believe Porphyry here. Think about this. Plotinus lived through most of the 3rd century, from the year 204 or 5 when he was born until 270 when he died. And he lived part of that at Rome. So he saw all the chaos and great events of that century. The third century crisis, which we discussed in episode 95, and yet he never mentions a single event of current news or politics or anything in his writings. Never. Nothing. He might as well have been living in some utopian peacenik commune for all he tells us about the wars, assassinations, military victories and defeats, currency crises, plague, social upheavals etc. of his era. So Plotinus was simply not interested in what was going on in the world of the senses, in the temporal world, the aesthetos cosmos. He was focused on the noetos cosmos, the eternal world of the noetic forms. This is what interests him as a Platonist philosopher, and this is where he spends most of his time, as it were. Of course, there is no time in the noetic world, so spends most of his eternal philosophical moment. However, we are able to piece together some basics of Plotinus's life from Porphyry, along with some scattered references from later sources, and see the notes to this episode for the chapter and verse of the statements we're going to make here. And before we get into this, let me just say we're leaving tons of really interesting stuff out. Um, a lot of it will hopefully come up in the course of our series on Plotinus, but if you want to know the details, just get yourself a copy of Porphyry's Life of Plotinus in English. You can find it online and um, you can read it for yourself. It's, it's not very long. It's full of interesting details and lots of cool stuff we're going to have to leave out here, like the incident with the snake. So Plotinus was born in Egypt and many assume at Alexandria because this is definitely where he studied later on, but actually his place of birth is unknown. Some sources give a city called Lyco or Lycopolis, and there are two different Lycopolis in Egypt, so we really don't know. We have no evidence that he knew Egyptian, or even that he was particularly engaged with Egyptian culture. The one time he does address it directly in his writings, he describes it as a kind of foreign cultural tradition. So he's a Hellene by culture. And as we shall discuss, he even identifies as a Hellene in a polemical uh, context, which is very important for our understanding of the development of identity politics in late antiquity. He must have been independently wealthy somehow, but we have absolutely no idea for how, how much, or anything like that. 
We know, though, that he did the usual shopping around for philosophic masters until he heard a man speak at Alexandria, a mysterious figure called Ammonius Sakas or Ammonius the Porter, that's like the guy who carries your luggage for you, and said famously, Tuton es de tun. This is the man I was looking for. He became Ammonius's student and studied with him for a full 11 years. Now, Ammonius Sakas, much ink has been spilled about this man, but none of it gets us very far. He wrote nothing as far as we know. Porphyry mentions that three students of Ammonius, Arrhenius, Origen, and Plotinus, swore an oath to keep the teachings of Ammonius secret, which they later broke. Now, this adds a nice layer to the esotericism of Plotinus's writings, whatever the historical facts, because it means that all of his works are maybe revealed secrets, right? But wait a minute, I hear someone ask, did you just say origin? As in origin, the esoteric Christian philosopher you discussed in episode 97 and further episodes? Yes, gentle listener, Plotinus had a colleague by that name. Is this our origin, the esoteric Platonizing Christian writer? Well, as we discussed in episode 97, the scholarly mainstreaming classics wants to argue that there were two origins and two different teachers called Ammonius at the same time, roughly, in Alexandria. So we have Origen the Platonist and Origen the Christian, and never the twain shall meet. Others, including a minority of classicists, think that this multiplication of origins is unnecessary, not to mention the extra Ammonius you need to conjure up, and that we are actually looking at the writings of Origen the Christian, who happened to be a fellow student of Plotinus of Alexandria. Hmm... You know what, let's just devote an episode to that question and move on. And by the way, Arrhenius, the third uh, member of the pact, is otherwise completely unknown to us, so he just disappears off the page of history. Plotinus studied with Ammonius for 11 years, and at a certain uncertain point went traveling, Porphyry tells us, in the retinue of the emperor Gordian. Now, the fact that Plotinus knows a bunch of emperors is another sign that he's probably from a well-to-do background, but we really can't fill in the details here at all. So Gordian was traveling to the east to make war on the Parthians. As Porphyry puts it, Plotinus accompanies him as part of the age-old search for the wisdom of the east journey motif, because he wants to learn the philosophy of the Persians and the Indians. Now, whatever really went on, it may be that Plotinus really did go on this journey to learn the philosophy of the Persians and Indians, uh, but the fact that that is a completely established trope of biographical writing already um, makes us question whether it's exactly the historical reality. Anyway, whatever went on exactly, we know that the expedition of Gordian met with military failure and Gordian was killed. And the Romans really had no business stirring up trouble on the eastern frontier uh, where they had a truce in place. They should have been worried about the destabilized situation at home but that is a story for a different podcast. At some point after this, Plotinus managed to make it back to Antioch, and at some point after this, he shows up in Rome. He starts teaching philosophy in Rome, and that is what he did until he died. Now, it's at this stage, when Plotinus has already been teaching for some time and already been writing down his treatises for some time, which he wasn't doing at first. At first, he was entirely oral teacher, like Ammonius before him. At some point, he was prevailed upon to start writing his works down. It's at this point that Porphyry shows up on the scene. 
So now we start to get a lot of details about Plotinus's seminar, um, who the students were, how it was organized, and so forth, which is really precious stuff and shows that we are witness in Porphyry's work to a, a rare and wonderful eyewitness account. For Plotinus's earlier life, Porphyry was reliant on what other students told him, and they seemingly didn't know all that much. Plotinus taught where exactly we don't know, but in a format that was open and old school. That is, anyone could show up and join in with questions or disputations at Plotinus's seminar. Now, what anyone means here is debatable. Could an unlettered slave, for example, show up and start asking questions? I don't think we can say. Could women attend? Definitely. Porphyry named some of Plotinus's female students for us, so we know women were there. Um, most of the people who get a mention by name in Porphyry's life seem to tend toward being upper class, but I don't think we can take that as evidence that there weren't people from less prestigious backgrounds in the seminar. Just Porphyry doesn't feel the need to mention them. Now, whatever Plotinus's life was like in Rome, we know that we, he was moving in pretty socially elevated circles. He knew some senatorial folks. Uh, he had the use of a number of villas, which John Dillon has plausibly argued was the kind of unofficial salary which a Platonist philosopher at the period could collect, since they're forbidden by Socrates' disgust at the sophists to collect any fees for their teaching. It's not okay for a Platonist to simply charge fees, but obviously every Platonist has got to live. So you can see both why we have to assume that Plotinus came from a pretty well-to-do background, because otherwise how could he have got started in this business and feed himself in the first place, but also that it may be through the sort of generous loan of things like the use of a, of a villa, which is a country estate with all its slaves and everything attached to it. He would have been able to live a, an extremely nice lifestyle, regardless of what kind of personal capital he had. We don't know anything about his wife, if any, or slaves, if any. We do know that he was made the legal guardian of a number of the children of well-to-do Romans. So the impression here is that he was acting sort of as a godfather, minus the Christian connotations of that term, and basically was trusted to manage the estates of these children in the event of the death of the parents, which by Porphyry's account he did in, in certain cases, fairly and well. And he taught. Some of his students we know just by their names. Others we know wrote extensive bodies of work on their own account now lost, like Amelius, who was probably Plotinus's head student, as it were, even though Porphyry is always trying to kind of downgrade Amelius a bit in the biography and make himself seem like Plotinus's star pupil. We also learn that Amelius had almost memorized the works of Numenius of Apamea and believed in an infinity of forms, which is an interesting way to solve the problem of forms of individuals, but kind of puts paid to the forms as essences from which particulars derive and their explanatory power. But anyway, uh, we know that Amelius wrote a lot, but we don't have any of it. Then there's Porphyry himself. A lot of his work survives. He wrote a lot more that doesn't survive. And he was in some ways a more influential philosopher than Plotinus himself going forward into the Middle Ages. But because he was so Plotinian in his basic thought, I feel like we can kind of consider Porphyry as part of the story of Plotinus's own successful influence. At any rate, Porphyry's works will be covered in some detail in the podcast, 
But there are two works which we have to consider now. The first one we've already been discussing, The Life of Plotinus. And the second one is, well, Plotinus's own writings, because Porphyry edited these and collected them in the form we now possess as Enneads. So an Ennead is a nine, a group of nine, or a nineness, Enneas in Greek. And we have an immense amount of Plotinus's writings, but Porphyry has divided them up along what seem to have been arithmological grounds into six groups of nine, or six Enneads. So when we read that Plotinus wrote the Enneads, this isn't true. Plotinus wrote a large number of philosophical works, some very, very short, some extremely long and involved, covering a whole range of topics from physics to biology to metaphysics, logic, mathematics, astronomy, astrology, theology, epistemology, and a bunch of other stuff. Porphyry took this massive work and in a very imperfect way ordered and in some cases chopped it up and in some cases mushed a bunch of smaller pieces together to make a six times nine set of writings. One work, the so-called Grossschrift or long writing of Plotinus, Porphyry divided into four different treatises, in one case actually chopping the work up in the middle of a sentence. So we'll come back to the sogenannte Grossschrift when we discuss Plotinus against the Gnostics. But anyway, that gives you some idea of the state of our text. We sometimes have to start by undoing Porphyry's arrangement before we can really approach Plotinus's thought. But Porphyry also amazingly gives two chronological lists of the writings of Plotinus, so we know when he wrote them. His Enneadic arrangement ignores chronology completely, being based loosely on a kind of thematic progression, with the first Ennead dealing with basic introductory matters, all the way to the fifth dealing with the noose, and the sixth dealing with the highest matters of metaphysics, the one or good. Porphyry thus both removes all chronological development from Plotinus's body of work, and also gives us the key to trying to restore this chronological development. So, while Porphyry's edition of Plotinus is precious to us because it means we can read Plotinus at all, it is also very arbitrary and somewhat misleading. Now, the way you cite Plotinus reflects this. We go by Ennead number, which is usually a Roman numeral, 1 through 6, followed by number of treatise within the Ennead, which is 1 through 9, so let's say 5, 3. Then, especially in French scholarship, we sometimes get the chronological number in square brackets, in this case, 49. So this is Ennead 5, 3, treatise 49, and then sometimes followed by chapter or line numbers. There's a handy-dandy guide to Platinian citations in the notes to this episode, so please consult that if you are at all baffled by the traditional way of citing Plotinus, which is all based on the editions of Henry and Schweitzer, which are also cited in the notes. Uh, the treatises also have titles from Porphyry, or at least we assume they're from Porphyry. Now, a few more things about Plotinus's writings. Armstrong, the first translator of all of Plotinus into English, says of the Enneads that they are, quote, an unsystematic presentation of a systematic philosophy, end of quote. I can buy this, but this isn't systematic philosophy in the sense of Nietzsche's will to system or of, of someone like Hegel. We will see that kind of systematization in spectacular form in, for example, Proclus later in antiquity. Plotinus's philosophy is a coherent whole, for sure, 
but it might not strike many readers as systematic. We can agree, however, with Armstrong wholeheartedly when he notes that the Enneads themselves are not systematic. This is undoubtedly true and makes Porphyry's thematic arrangement really absurd. Plotinus, for example, will be discussing the most humble aspects of like physical processes or the interactions of the elements or how the human blood works um, in the human body. And then he'll immediately swoop upward to the noetic world to explain these things. So where does that belong? Ennead 1 or Ennead 5? Conversely, he'll be discussing the one, which is Ennead 6 material, or rather some aspect of human thought about the one, since the one cannot be discussed. And then he'll suddenly focus in on some minutia of phenomenal existence, noting how for anything to be a single thing at all, it must partake of unity, which is the one. So what's that? Is that Ennead 6 material or is it Ennead 1 material? So it's a truism then that all of Plotinus sort of contains all of Plotinus. There's no introductory treatise. There's no basics for dummies Ennead which we can use as an entry point. Nor can we rely on Plotinus to stick to a given point. His mind ranges far and wide. And Porphyry tells us he actually based much of the writing of his works on the actual question and answer sessions that arose in the seminar. And they definitely reflect this. They often have an oral kind of performative nature to them. Sometimes he'll do things like say, so this conclusion, but what then? Well, that would lead us to think this and this and this. But then what about this? Well, A, B, and C. Yes, but what about the problem we mentioned earlier? So he, he, he definitely follows a kind of dialogic pattern a lot of the time. So this gives Plotinus's unsystematic works a really, really wonderful flow. And there's actually a lot more that can be said about Plotinus's writings, which we are going to have to refer to as the Enneads, even though, as we've pointed out, they're not really the Enneads. They're Plotinus's writings. It gives them this amazing fluidity and very approachable quality in a certain way although it also makes them very, very difficult to understand. And he is one of these thinkers that you sort of read all of it, and then you say, okay, now I feel like I kind of get things enough that I can go back to the beginning and reread all of it, and maybe I'll start to get what he's on about. We'll talk again in future episodes about the performative nature of Platinian writing and how he thinks the written philosophical word can be a tool for ontological, epistemological ascent toward the higher realities and even toward the one if you're very lucky but until then be like the one itself in its completely inaccessible and undescribable nature at the heart of all reality and stay esoteric <laughs> <laughs>